Alexa, what time is it? It's 6.27 p.m. And welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. Hello and yellow till we die. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sandspring. So there we are. Um, the end of another week. Another week in Funland. So how are you doing, Ian? Yeah, yeah not too bad. Um, been a reasonable week, busy as you like, and uh, and yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, got myself in the gym again this afternoon. I had a good August. I managed 15 gym visits in 31 days. I was pretty proud of myself there. Managed to put on about £20 over the, uh, over the month, so wasn't done as well as I might have hoped for my general body mass index, but still, I like to think I'm some kind of sculpted god, and I can't see if I'm not. So yeah, not 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 bad at all, mate. I think you've had a much tougher week, though. Um, well, yeah. I mean, aside, aside from the usual sort of things um, going on for me uh, at the moment, yeah. Um, unfortunately, my nan passed away um, last Saturday, so um, yes, it's um, it's uh, it's a um, but. Um, she she'd been suffering from vascular dementia for several years so it's um you know it's um it it's um it's a hard time even when you even when you know you you're kind of re- expecting it so it's um but um you know families come together hopefully at um yeah. at times like this no. and um um so yeah other than that um the cats have been fine um i'm still kind of frantically you know trying to find something grown up to do with my time but um yeah. other than that um yes so housing we wanted to talk Ooh. about housing well it's a, it's an interesting time I mean, housing is always a hot topic and we've covered it from various angles bef- before but you know during the pandemic um you know there, there's been some been some very you know rapid and, and, and agile changes to the law and the one we want to talk about this afternoon is the is the fact that currently um, there is a moratorium on um, evicting tenants. Um, so, you know, obviously that 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 is a, a good thing and possibly a bad thing. And there are two sides to every story. So we're lucky enough that we've got two guests on this afternoon. We've got friend of the pod, and I think describes himself as a housing activist and, and is a very knowledgeable man. So Cal Corkery is back joining us, local Labour councillor. And we're joined by Rick Rutter, one of our um one of our friends off of the off of the Portsmouth Politics site, who um, reached out to us because he's got a, a story to share from a landlord's perspective. So hopefully we can have a, an interesting old chat. Yes, yeah. So it'd be nice to hear kind of um, their different uh, their different views. Uh, we invited Rick along um, because he'd, he'd shared a bit of an experience actually in the um, in the Pompey Politics Facebook group. Um, so it was an interesting angle to kind of hear his his personal story. But before we yeah. before we kind of delve into that, uh, what's happened on this day, Simon? What happened in the past? So what's happened in the past on so in the history of September sixth what happened so I, I made it down to three things just to kind of save people's patience so they didn't keep shouting at the screen um so in 1941 all jews over the age of six in german territories were ordered to wear the star that's uh, a pretty dark time in history isn't it? it indeed indeed um 1997 the funeral of diana princess of wales was held at westminster abbey in london ah uh, that takes me back 
Candle in the Wind. Was it 97? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Now, I've been married two years, and I remember the phone ringing at 8.0-something back when I was living in Gosport. And, of course, there's never a good call at 8 o'clock in the morning, and you jump up and like, what's happened? What's happened? And it was your mum telling us that Princess Di was dead, which was sad, but I didn't really need to know at well, seven or something. It was it was the it was the early morning, and yes, so um, yeah, Christ, what's that? Uh, Twenty three years ago. Yeah, I, funny enough, I I had a similar. I mean, I at the time, I where Emma and I married at that point. I think we were. Yeah, we must have been married at that point. Um, but um, we were in our, our flat in North End, and funnily enough, got a phone call from from her mum. Um, so, um, but um, there we go, and so many other um, things have happened since. Um, the final thing, by the way, to end on a lighter note, was 2012. Barack Obama accepts the Democratic nomination for U.S. president. Yeah, funny old one, Obama, and I wonder how history is going to look at him because. You know, for me, seemed like a really decent man. And again, what, what's followed on since doesn't look quite so great. But there's an element of, oh, I don't know, I wonder whether his presidency really achieved as much as people hoped that it might. Because he became that second term. He was a little bit of a lamed up president, wasn't he? Nothing he wanted to do seemed to seemed to get through. And he doesn't seem as, um, what's the word, as... Um, as reckless as the current incumbent who just signs off presidential orders like he's signing autographs. So, um, yeah, I do wonder about how, how history will view Mr. Obama. Um, I don't know. I mean, obviously, the other thing was, um, you know, the, the Democrats didn't have um, didn't have Congress. Um, no. So, you know, there was a limit to how much actually le- le- legislatively he could do. Um, so, um, you know, in that respect, that's that's kind of part of the part and parcel of the of the american system is that the president isn't actually as all-powerful as perhaps some presidents including the current occupant of the white house seem to think that they are um but you know nonetheless um we have faith in democracy if you are an american voter please do make sure you cast your vote for november's election um but um moving back closer to home and it is and it is of homes we speak do you see what i did was that was that was that beautiful that's a beautiful like a young, young Eamon Holmes. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, I've got the chins, I guess. Um, so, yes. So, what... Uh, yes, the whole kind of um, the rental situation and the, the housing market. So, as we alluded to earlier on, shall I do the kind of quick timeline while we... Because we've got one of our guests sitting in the waiting room, but we haven't got the other one turned up just yet. So, shall I talk about the timeline quickly and then we welcome Rick in? I think that might be appropriate. Give t- that'll give um, that'll give Cal a little bit a little bit more time to um, to join us. So just to just in case uh, people weren't aware, back in March, March it seems like you know more than half a year ago because it, it damn well you know feels like we've lived a whole year in a couple of months, doesn't it? Um, so it was on March the eighteenth that the government actually um, announced a moratorium on evictions um, in order to give additional protection to renters because of. Uh, because of the lockdown and because of uh, people that um, weren't going to be able to afford their afford to pay their rent so there was emergency legislation uh, to suspend new evictions from social or private rented accommodation while this national emergency was while the national emergency was taking place um, and no new possession possession proceedings uh, through applications to the court 
to start during that crisis. Um, um, and landlords will also be protected as three-month mortgage payment holidays extended to buy to let mortgages. So that was an interesting thing. And then on June the 5th, um, the government announced that they would be extending the moratorium on evictions until August 23rd. Um, and and then, ah, that's, uh, that's Cal joining the waiting room, so that's brilliant. And then on August the 21st, so two days before the extension was due to finish, um, the extension is then um, extended again. Um, and then extend, it's extended till the 20th of September. Um, so uh, basically extended it for another four weeks um, and putting in place new six-month notice periods to be in place until at least the 31st of March 2021. Um, and also saying that once eviction hearings restart, the judiciary will carefully prioritise the most serious cases, including those involving antisocial behaviour and uh, domestic abuse. Um, in intending to give um, intended to give tenants greater protection over being evicted during the winter period, um, and uh, yeah, so it's um, so it's an interesting. Just, so, yeah. of- Just cycle back on that six month notice period. Is yep. that now that that's that's not linked to evictions? That's basically if you if you decide you want to move your tenant on, yeah. Let's say you want to sell the rental property or you want to. You know, you want to move back in yourself. Let's say you've been working abroad, one of those kind of things. You've now got to give a tenant a minimum of six months' notice. Yes. Cool. I just want to make yeah. sure. I'm I out. That so if 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 their if their original contract period had lapsed, and they were in, right? Yeah. So I think I think that's kind of how that works. To be fair, the experts can um, can inform us more greatly on that one. Um, that's indeed the point of having them here. So um, without further ado. Shall we? Uh, shall we welcome him, Rick, as he's as he's been cu- um, quietly waiting in the waiting room? Um, so I shall add, admit them both, and allow Zoom to catch up doing its thing. Um, hello, Rick. You're just on mute for a second. Let's. Um, yep. Okay. Fantastic. You can hear us. We can hear you. And I'm just going to say hi to Cal. And then what I'll do is ask you to in- introduce yourself. Hi, Cal. I don't know if that was a wave at the screen or that um, that he's still on mute. Good evening. Good evening. Good Hello, mate. Oh, How are you doing? Back. There we are. Right. OK. So, so we have our full set. Um, so brilliant. So uh, Rick, if you wouldn't mind just introducing yourself and um, and giving us a bit of a, a bit of background as to as to how you're impacted by the current situation. Okay, so my name's Rick. I uh, my mother is from Portsmouth, which is my link to Portsmouth, um, and I also know people down there. Um, but I actually live in Buckinghamshire. Um, I was a teacher. I ten years ago bought um, a small company for a year or two. They tend to be people who are homeowners elsewhere in the country, and whose jobs bring them to Buckinghamshire for a year or two. Um, so they need to rent out their house and rent in Buckinghamshire until their job then moves them on again. Perfect. Well, that's a that's a, 
a great starting point and we'll, we'll come into a little bit more details about the situation in your story um, later on. But thank you for coming on, Rick. And Cal, go on. Thank you. Uh, so my name's Cal Corkery. I'm a councillor on Portsmouth City Council. I represent Charles Dickens Ward in the city centre. I've um, also got a background of kind of working and campaigning around housing issues. Thank you, Cal. So you, Simon ran through the um, the timeline uh, just just and you may have missed the first bit of it, Cal. Where you know back in March the government announced the moratorium on evictions. They then um, you know extended that to June, extended it again from August to September. Would you mind just opening up and just give us your thoughts on on that piece of legislation, your thoughts on it, and and maybe some of your thoughts about where that might go next. Yeah, brilliant. So, I mean, we know from the national research that hundreds of thousands of people um, have fallen into rent arrears. I think the figure I was reading earlier was 220,000 as a result of COVID and changes to people's incomes and circumstances. Um, so there is this whole host of people, which is actually still quite a small percentage of the overall private renting population, but is obviously a significant number within itself. Um, and there are real concerns about where that's going to lead. If you look at what local authorities are already doing in terms of homelessness support and Portsmouth no different, there are unprecedented numbers of people in temporary accommodation um, following the everyone in directive that requires local authorities to put up in temporary accommodation, rough sleepers who quite often before they didn't have a legal duty to house. The local authorities have got this this big issue with lots of people already in temporary accommodation. And I think people are looking at the private rented sector um, and what could potentially happen as a result of arrears that have accrued or other reasons or no reason at all um, is that people could end up being uh, evicted en masse. And there's been talk of a, a tsunami, a potential tsunami um, of evictions coming. So th there is a real issue that needs to be addressed. I think the government's put in a position where they had to, they had no other choice other than to um, suspend possession uh, hearings and kind of put on pause all evictions, essentially. I think the, the most recent extension by a month um, speaks to a lack of general strategy and long-term thinking. It was a kind of a reactive um, response to the impending um, resumement of court proceedings and they kind of obviously panicked and by another month but what we really need to do i think and hopefully this is what we can talk about is have a bit more long-term strategy over how people that have fallen into arrears how they're going to be able to address their situation and avoid homelessness um, but also over wider structural issues in the way in which the private rented sector um, is formed and obviously section 21 and then no fault evictions is going to be a major part of that and the government has made commitments to end that um, in those no-fault evictions, but we're yet to see how that's going to play out. So they, they've not yet legislated, although they've said they were going to stop no-fault evictions, they haven't legislated for it yet, have they? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Right. Okay, that's cool. Thank you, Cal. Um, and um, moving on to um, to Rick, so you, what's your what's your take on, on how the how the um, how the moratorium's been handled and how it's going and, and what you'd want to 
see happen now? Um, well, in terms of the Section 21 notices, the, the government have done two things. Initially, they extended the requirement from two months to three months. They've now extended again. So a Section 21, you have to give six months notice to tenants um, to say, I want to end the tenancy. Um, it's impacted me because obviously the rent from my property um, is my income. That's what I live on. And so if my tenants just stop paying rent, then I'm, I'm now without an income and have been actually I've been without that income for 10 months. It's, you know, yes, I understand that people who have made um, redundant may have difficulty paying their rent, but if they don't pay their rent, then I'm effectively out of pocket. I don't have anything to live off. I've burnt through all of my savings trying to carry on paying the mortgage on both the house I live in and the buy to let property. I need tenants that pay rent. So to be clear, Rick, uh, the current situation, you mentioned 10 months there. So were you in a position where you already had tenants that were starting to fall into arrears when yeah. COVID broke? Yes, I had a possession hearing date set for the middle of April. So you so they stopped paying rents last November. You have to wait for two months before you can um, give a Section 8 notice. So they were two months in arrears. You then give a Section 8 notice. You have to give them at least two weeks notice to move out. And they don't have to move out at that point. And when they don't move out, that's when you go to a court to ask for a possession order. And the courts are so busy that the possession order can be literally months after you started the legal process. So I started the legal process at the end of January and my date was in April. So three months to wait for a court date. Mm -hmm. And then of course, COVID hit and the courts were closed. And I'm still not getting any rent from them. So in, in this scenario, Rick, and this is where, uh, for, forgive me as having to delve into the details, but I think it's really important. So, you know, for me, the, the, there has to be a situation now where the tenants are either, you know, again, the, 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 I get a short-term break in income. You know, you get made redundant, you lose your job, you, the, the, some circumstance befalls you. But ultimately, after two, three months, my expectation would be that, you know, either they would, you know, fall into housing benefit or, you know, be picking up, a form of either benefit or another job or something. So I, I kind of, it almost feels that the, the, the that this moratorium on evictions has been exploited by the tenants who could pay you, but are just choosing not to. Yes. So my tenants, um, the two adults, married couple, um, he lost his job last November and stop paying rent she is still employed full-time so they have a, a household income of about thirty-five thousand a year so a net income each month of about two and a half thousand 
they have chosen to pay nothing. None of the rent. You know, they haven't come, come to me and said, do you mind if we pay, you know, two thirds of it? Because we're in a bit of a time. They have paid nothing for 10 months. But they've had an income. So I don't know what they're spending money on. So I, I guess you're, I mean, I wouldn't think for a million years that you're you're the only landlord in that sort of situation or in similar situations where um because of you know because of this they've got um you know they, yep. they've got tenants for whatever reasons that aren't actually able to meet the meet the rent um if you're depending on that income then you, you know that in a sense is 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 then involving obviously you in that in that situation and putting you in a, a to a you know, into financial hardship because because yeah. of that. Um, so, um, Cal, what would uh, I mean? I don't I don't think it's really fair to kind of ask you to directly kind of respond to Rick's situation because um, a it wouldn't be right for us to kind of talk about you know his his um, you know his his tenants. But in in kind of situations where where you know the landlord is is in real kind of um, strife by the tenant being uh, not being able to actually um, to, to meet the meet the meet the rent payments. What what would you want to see happening at, at this point? Well, I think there's always going to be a, a small number of extreme cases um, of people that potentially do exploit systems and loopholes. But I think it's important to focus on the wider picture. Um, I think it's only maybe three percent of people of renters that have fallen into rent arrears um, over the course of the last couple of months. I said earlier, it's, it's quite a large number because there's quite a large number of um, renters across the country. But I think most people are, are striving to keep up with their rent um, and take whatever measures they can to try and address any issues. I think it's also worth reflecting on the fact that there is support out there, um, financial support for landlords. Um, obviously, we've had the, the mortgage um, holidays been made available. Um, and there's also kind of low income benefits, for people that do rely, uh, rely on that income as their sole source of income. Things like universal credit and other income related benefits are then available to them if they meet the eligibility. No. Um, go on, Rick. Why not? Because I own property. And so, so, yeah, no, that's why I mean, so you don't meet the eligibility criteria for means tested benefits. I cannot get a means tested benefit because I own property. The fact that property isn't giving me an income, the government say, oh, yeah, but you've got all this equity. Well, that's bloody useless at the moment. Yeah? I, so I can't get universal yeah. credit. I mean, yeah, all right, I can, uh, I have taken my three month holiday on my mortgage, both my mortgages. That just pushes the debt further down the line. So, yeah, as I say, there's always going to be the extreme. Has gone up. There's it's always going to be extreme examples. Um, but I, I think the wider picture is one of got pre-COVID from an experience from the perspective of tenants um, and a wider community of insecurity um, and lack of affordability within a private sector, and they're the issues that really need to be looked at and addressed. Um, going forward, because the government can keep postponing possession hearings um, all at once, but unless it really addresses the fact that mo a lot of people can't afford the rents, and a lot of people uh, live massively insecure lives in terms of their employment as well as their housing, then we're not going to make any progress, and we're going to keep going around in circles. I think they're the main issues that we need to be talking about and trying to address. 
I, I don't necessarily disagree, Cal, but I think we do have a real-world situation now. Um, I've been contacted by um, a, a landlord in Portsmouth that has a, a, an HMO with five tenants in there currently that were supposed to move out. Um, and in the middle of June, they basically folded their arms and said, we're not going to move out. We're not going to pay you rent. Um, and that landlord had five new students that were scheduled to come in on Monday. And obviously that can't happen because the people are there. And I guess the question is with this, with this moratorium on evictions, uh, I guess the question is that there is an element of, for some people there will be in genuine hardship and, and that's what it's there to support them on. But there's an element of at some point, this has got a break. And you're then going to have the situation where currently you've got, you know, landlords who own buy-to-let properties. And I think Rick's given us a very vivid picture of how it's affecting him. But there will be probably dozens and hundreds of those across the country. Um, and ultimately, there is an element of when it breaks, we're going to see a, you know, I think you touched on it. We're just kicking the can down the street, aren't we, in terms of just, you know, postponing the, the the resumption of eviction hearings yeah no i think you're right and i think one of the things we need to look at is what is going to happen to the arrears that have been accrued and um, they obviously need to be addressed in some way i know that the welsh government has um, put aside money for loans to tenants that they, they can pay off the arrears and then re repay those loans over time which i think is progress is better than what's on offer in england at the moment um, however, I would worry about if that's just putting people further into debt and whether those repayments are actually going to be affordable. So I think some kind of loan repayment scheme perhaps complemented by the eligible for loans that would find them unaffordable is it, it, the kind of direction we need to be going in as an interim measure um, while we're looking at those wider structural issues that address kind of affordability and security long term. If I, if I look at that grant piece, though, Cal, so so you've got a situation where, you know, Rick's been very clear that, that his tenants have basically done the not going to pay you. Um, and and there's an element of it doesn't feel fair to me if those people were then able to pocket a grant to cover their rent arrears, which is probably going to run to multiple thousands now. Um, you know, when effectively it's been a choice not to pay rather than an inability to pay. Yeah, and I think you can easily address that by making any grant or loan conditional on it being proven that the arrears have accrued as a result of COVID, mm. which I understand is the way in which the Welsh scheme works. Super. So, Rick, just cutting back to you in terms of, you know, the amount that you're owed is going to be piling up and piling up, and at some point this will break, and I'm guessing from your perspective you're hoping it's sometime it is that there's no further extensions, uh, you know, as somebody who is, you know, financially massively out of pocket, what, what, what options do you have to go after the tenants who have effectively lived rent free at your expense? Um, so I, my expectation is assuming the moratorium isn't extended again, my expectation is that the courts will be really busy because they haven't sat for six months. Yep. And they really, they were really busy already. And now they've got another six months worth. 
I don't think I will get an eviction hearing until the end of the year. So it'll be after Christmas, I think, before I can get tenants out. By which time they will owe £25,000. So that's rent, wow. arrears, that's court fees, and then that's interest on the debt. Yeah. I don't think I'll get that money back. Uh, if I do, it'll be a dribble. It'll be a court order that says you've got to pay him, you know, £150 a month for the next century. So, but, you know, that money will just dribble in, hopefully. Or they'll just disappear. You know, they'll, and I won't be able to trace them in order to, to enforce any sort of money claim. So I guess um, the thought that kind of occurs to me is that would you say, Cal, that it's that it's right that probably most landlords actually only actually rent out um, one or two or you know a couple of properties rather than kind of having a massive portfolio? Is that is that is that kind of the case? Do we know what the break up breakdown is of of number of properties rented out for landlords roughly? Is that is it? I don't I don't have the figures to hand. Yeah. I know there is. Um, it's an argument that's quite often put forward by the landlord lobby. Actually, a lot of landlords are small and only own one or two properties but i think the kind of counter to that is actually there are a lot also that are who own significant numbers of property um and track significant revenue streams and rent from that and it's hardly for business for many people yeah it, it, it is I, I guess yeah i mean when when you look at yeah on return on investment at the moment you know it, it, it is attractive until you get the scenario where you get a tenant that doesn't pay. So then ultimately, you know, the, the profit margins that you are looking to make evaporate extremely quickly. I think that also depends on on how the landlord runs the property. So Cal was talking about, you know, landlords who own loads of properties. Well, quite often they're the landlords that give landlords a bad name because when work needs doing, they don't actually do it because it's costing them money. So my my profits, quite often, I've had no profit in a year because I've put double glazing into the house or I've had a new high efficiency boiler put into the house or, you know, now obviously that's increasing the value of the house. But I haven't always been taking a revenue out of it because it was only since I've, I've stopped work and have needed to rely on it but but it's been my revenue source i mean for me it's it's my pension how do you yeah, invest we... in your pension you, and you you know i've chosen to have a buy to let house i'm good at diy i do a lot of the work myself um you know when things need fixing between tenants you know i repaint the whole house so it's fresh you know, you clean out the drains because tenants never clean out the drains and we're full of pain, you know, things like that. I put value into the property in my time between tenants and hand to deal with it. I think a lot of companies that own hundreds of properties can be really poor landlords and are just out to make a profit. I'm guessing you'd agree with that, Cal? I would, but I think it's also worth um, looking at what's happened to the housing market over the past 
20 or 30 years. And lots of people that did invest in property in 90s or 2000s have seen massive increases in their wealth um, as an, an accident of what's happened within the wider housing market. So it's not been earned in any way. It's kind of unearned increases in wealth and income. So landlords have had a pretty good time of it for a long time. And as I keep saying, I think there's kind of really significant need for a wider long-term strategy that tries to redress some of the imbalances between landlords and tenants. And, and just expand on that a bit for me, Cal. So what, what do you see as the, so, so the, I mean, obviously rents, you know, it's a market like any other market where, you know, anything's only ever worth what somebody's prepared to pay for it. And in terms of, of the rental market, again, that follows the same, you know, that follows the same pathway, which is that the, 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 the rents and the prices of properties have, have found their level. Yes, but that's also supply and demand. The fact that successive governments have failed to build the number of houses we, meet, we need is what has driven the, the the massive increase in property values. That's my comment on it. Now, would be. As an individual landlord, that's not my fault. You know, and, and Charles, right? Yeah, I've done well out of it. I had the money in stocks and shares originally, and then 2008, I suddenly found that the stocks and shares were worth a lot less than I thought they were. And I thought, well, that's a mugs game. What can I invest in that? will actually give me a sensible income and increase its value. And that's why I went in to have a buy to let. And it's worked very well for me. Until now. Until now. Yes, until now. Yeah. yeah. And then, of course, if I had a dozen houses, then it wouldn't matter if one of them had turned into a loss in one year, because it would even it out across. But when it's just the one thing, and you don't have an income for 10 months, that's been a problem for me. Cal? I think this touches me on a key issue when it comes to housing is what is the function of housing in society? Is it to provide safe and secure accommodation for people that need it? Or is it to provide investment opportunities for people that have got money that want to make more money? And clearly I'm steering towards the fact that housing should be for people that need it at rates that are affordable, that accommodation is at decent standards, it gives people security that they need to live kind of settled and cohesive lives. It, it, it potentially could be both, but I think that providing decent and affordable housing for people should be the primary concern. Once we've ticked that box, we can then look at whether we can also open it up for investors and the like. Um, but it's clear with the, the homelessness crisis we've got, with the crisis of people that are having to move from house to house from year to year because of insecurity and building up arrears and getting into debt because their rents are unaffordable, that we're not meeting the first condition which is just providing housing for people that need it. See, it, it's quite interesting because, to be honest, broadly with everything you were saying there, I can see Rick sitting there um, nodding his head that, you know, at the end of the day, there it, it's interesting that, listen to it, I don't think that those two things need to be mutually exclusive. Um, 
but there is an, there is a, a situation, isn't there, where on one hand, um, and whether whether you might whether someone might conclude that um, if um, if your supporters are people that historically have made substantial sums of money from a um, a ballooning property market, they're unlikely to be encouraging. You know, you're unlikely to be encouraged as as an administration if your supporters were like that, to suddenly actually flood the market with loads of actual properties and thereby dri- um, drive down the um, the price of that property, um, which, as you say, you know, successive administrations of, of different colours have failed to build the number of properties that we need um, over decades. And we're, you know, we're in this situation and we, you know, you, you, you can talk about, we, you know, it, it, in the 40s and 50s, after, after the Second World War, we managed to build tens hundreds of thousands of um of affordable homes for people um but that seems to be something that we're not able to do now and it doesn't it's not that we've forgotten how to build houses is it so it's something else yeah absolutely it's it's about government policy yeah and yeah i think you're exactly right and if the government was building significant numbers of social homes as it should be um, and the, the private sector was then there for, for people that um, didn't want or need a council house, then leaving it to its own devices probably would be more justified. But the private rented sector has become, for many people, the kind of option of last resort. They can't get on a council house waiting list. They can't afford to buy their own home. So they're left with no other option um, and be stuck in the private sector where realistically they probably don't want to be and there's kind of an interesting point about the the misnomer of affordable homes isn't it because what potentially developers define as affordable homes or or discounting against uh, market rate isn't necessarily probably what the median income would would bear is that is that your you know what would you say on that Cal? yeah i mean one of the the major housing policy failures of last past decade has been this redefinition of what affordable housing is and um, to move away from the typical social rent definition which was quite often around 40 to 50 percent of um, local market um, rental levels and in places like London actually probably less because the market prices are so high um, and to redefine it for rental as up to 80 percent of what the market rent is um, so, so in places like London, high rent areas, that means you see social housing with very high rent. It's pegged to what the market um, can charge. But even in places like Pompey, which is, is relatively affordable compared to somewhere like London, um, you still see kind of rents within the social housing sector that are significant and quite often more than people can afford if they're on a low income. Isn't the challenge, though... There's certainly a a mismatch, isn't there, between people's income and the cost of housing. And it's fine if you you have a a high income um, and you can afford housing. If you have a high income and you can afford housing, you can probably get a mortgage and buy your own house. But people who don't have high incomes and are then reliant on rent, on renting properties, and the rents are too high. But it, but it, yeah, it's an interesting kind of situation, isn't it? That people that are renting are paying more per month than they would be if they were actually able to mortgage, you know, to to be able to secure a mortgage. They're paying someone now else's I, mortgage, but I th- think it's wrong to compare 
what the monthly cost of the mortgage is with what the monthly cost of renting is because they don't cover the same things. Yeah, so um, when you rent, when something goes wrong, you don't have to suddenly find £10,000 for a new boiler. You don't have to suddenly find whatever it is for a new washing machine. As a landlord, I have to find that. The washing machine is broken. Oh, okay. Down to Curry's. Buy a new one. Yeah. So renting spreads out some of those costs. There are other costs that I have to bear mm -hmm. as the landlord. So I have to, I pay the insurance on the property. So if you were a mortgage, you know, your mortgage, you would also then have the cost of your insurance. So you can't directly compare what would the mortgage be with what's the rent. The other thing is, of course, I have to pay 10% to the estate agents who found the tenants. The estate agents are making, you know, they're making money out of it because they do very little and they get lots of money. Well, I guess that's why there's lots of entrants into the into the market that don't have the same sort of model with the administrative, you know, the administrative um, commission, if you like, um, with regard to introducing tenants to to landlords. But I guess that there is a market in in, in and of itself finding the right tenant for each landlord, or you know, doing all those sorts of things, you know, all the referencing checks or all those sorts of administrative things that. You know, someone with you know one or two properties isn't isn't necessarily going to be expert enough in. Whereas, if, actually, if you outsource that to an to an estate agent, but it, it seems you know, te if what's that? Ten, sorry, is that ten percent they're taking um, off um, off of uh, you know, assuming you were getting paid, assuming you know, they'd be taking ten percent of your of your monthly of the yes. monthly payment. Yeah, that's um. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm in the wrong games. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, been there for five years. Now, actually, the estate agents are so embarrassed about the whole situation that they've stopped charging me. Well, how can they charge they you when the tenant's not paying you? Right. <laughs> right. Okay. Because, you know, otherwise they'd have found out that, that these tenants are unreliable at paying their rent. Cal, if we look towards Portsmouth, uh, and I guess it's it, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because if we look at, you know, uh, I think it was either someone or yourself touched on pug houses, and if you if you look at the Lee Park estate up in Haven, I think at the time that was built, that was the biggest council housing estate in Europe, um, you know, which was built post-war to house the people from Portsmouth who had been you know, driven out. Isn't the challenge now simply that there isn't enough space on a crowded city like Portsmouth to build the very significant number, amount of social housing that we need? I think space can always be found if you're looking for it. And I think it's an inevitable fact that significant numbers of new homes are going to be built in and around Portsmouth um, in the coming years, particularly with the government policy at the moment, pushing local authorities to ensure um, that is the case. My question would be, who are those homes going to be for? Are they going to be um, built by private developers who build hardly any affordable housing? And if they do, it's probably not actually affordable at all. Or are, is the local authority going to take a leading role in intervening in the market, um, shaping new communities? 
is ensuring that there's that housing mix there that actually meets the needs of local people. And I think that this two, it's actually more than that, but two city centre north site, the old Tricorn site, which for a long time has been zoned for um, significant redevelopment. The most recent thoughts are that a big part of that will be housing. Um, it's not just going to be retail as plans once were. That's something which, as far as I can tell, with very little progress is being made on. Um, the, the council signed over its share of the land to a public-private partnership with Delancey, the developer who was responsible for the failed Northern Quarter development. Um, and as far as I can tell, nothing, no progress has been made. Not one brick has been laid. The same at Tipner. The majority of the Tipner site is publicly owned land where significant numbers of new council homes could be built. I remember a few years ago when the Lib Dems were in opposition, they got Vince Cable down for a, vote, for a photo shoot um, in the local election campaign at Titner, with him kind of pointing to the empty disused land. And the argument was, well, if the Lib Dems were in control of the council, we'd get on and start building homes here. Again, not one brick has been laid. Aren't we now slightly distracted, though, following the, the two high-rise blocks, Horatio House and... The other one whose name escapes me, where we we effectively had to rehouse two hundred and seventy families, and now have to knock those down and rebuild them, subject to peregrine falcons. I, I don't get what the link is that you're you're trying to make. I mean, those how I, I get. I guess my my question is that that you know, I guess is is does the council you know the council has already got a housing project on the go with replacing those two high-rise blocks. I guess the question is, is the council structured to and in Tipner and in Somerstown where it's replacing the, the high-rise buildings? Right, okay. So, yeah, sorry, my my internet connection's a bit a bit dodgy, so it kind of, I think I got the gist of what you were saying. So you're, you're asking whether... So in response to what Cal's suggesting, which is that there should be more municipal council involvement in actually intervening in the market, your question is actually are the council in a position to be able to do that because do they have, I, they have the bandwidth to deal with yeah, it? Yeah, personally, uh, I'd like them to. So I, I'm just, I'm kind of scratching my head a little bit as to why we wouldn't. So, but aren't there, um, Cal, you'll, you'll definitely know a lot more about this than, than probably either of us, but aren't there... Legislative, legislative blocks that kind of that stop actually councils getting that much involved actually with the with the local housing sector um, raising money aside because we if we can to be blunt if we if we can borrow money to invest in Waitroses in Somerset then we can borrow money can we borrow money to invest in our own in our own housing in our own city does that or have I just written your leaf, next leaflet for you yeah yeah well yeah, exactly. No, I mean, <laughs> Damn it. in finances aside, oh, and actually, stop I it. Finances Cal, can be, no, you can't uh, do that. Can I'm gonna, you can't put the finances aside. The finances are everything, aren't they? It, it was Simon who suggested putting finances aside, so I was asking a question. But okay, we can talk on. about finances, but in terms of practicalities, no, there's very little that prevents local authority um, from taking the lead on regeneration projects. And in fact, lots of local authorities do exactly that. Sometimes the barrier is land ownership, um, but as I talked about in City Centre North and Tipner, places like that, actually the land is already within the public sector, so that shouldn't be 
um, a particular barrier in itself. And discussing finances, report after report has shown that investment in social housing pays for itself more than enough over the course of a kind of 20, 30 year business cycle. Um, so it, it makes sense. The figures quite often can be stacked up. Um, and it's important that local authorities are getting on and doing this rather than just leaving it to the market because we all know where that leads. Well, and this is why I'm confused. So you've got a mixture of political colours on there. And Rick, I don't know which flag you fly. It, it, it doesn't really matter because we, we kind I'm, of... I'm all... not a member of any organised political uh, party. So I suppose that makes me a Lib Dem. Hey! Ooh. Oh, we, we like that. I was going like to can... say, to be you honest, can... most of the political parties aren't that I've experienced aren't necessarily that organised, but um, oh, nonetheless, you, you can come on. <laughs> you can come on again. I guess the question that I, I throw out to the room is that we, we all kind of uh, none of us here have got this sort of you know boorish free market. You know, it's got to find its place. You know, we all kind of racial housing. You know, it's madness for a, you know, a council to be, you know, any council to be paying out thousands in housing benefit when, you know, they could probably get that return on investment and the house that we built ourselves much, much faster. So I guess the question that I throw to the room is, so why aren't we doing it then? Political will. Yeah, I agree. Ultimately, yeah. If the politicians want something to happen, they can make it happen. You know, there has to be the political will to say, this is a priority, this is what we're going to do. And if that's not your front. And then part of that, the problem with that, so Cal was talking about the return over 20 or 30 years, is the politicians can't think that long. Most politicians are thinking about the next election, which is a couple of years down the line, and what can I do now? To make sure I get the vote in a couple of years' time, not what can I do now that is going to benefit, in your case, Portsmouth, in 30 years' time, because they're not going to be in office in 30 years' time, and everyone will have forgotten about this. Um, yeah, yeah. Oh, we had a new education secretary. They change everything. Just so that they can make a mark on teaching and teachers go, yeah, and then they move on and become problem secretary. And then they, they're just interested in making a mark, they're not interested actually in saying we need a plan for the next 30 years, let's get on with it. Now, that's not true of all politicians, obviously. Um, no, I, I would completely agree, actually, with Rick's analysis there. And one of the, the main um, lessons that I've learned, actually, since being elected a little over a year ago, is I think one of the major barriers within Portsmouth specifically um, to the kind of significant changes that need to be made is this short-termism. Um, and obviously in Portsmouth, one of the, the main contributory factors to that is the fact that we have elections more or less every year. So no sooner has an administration been confirmed that it's going to be running the council for next year that they've well, everyone's then got their eyes on the election that's in 10 or nine months um so it, it really doesn't i think contribute towards the kind of long-term strategic planning and thinking that is needed interesting 
because I, I I know that um I know we're kind of di- diverging a little bit from um uh, from from topic, but it's it's an interesting it's an interesting output of how how actually the political system itself affects the decisions that are made or the risks that are taken in order to in order to invest in a better society. It kind of seems that amongst our um, amongst our little grouping of, of four people of very varying political um, persuasions and none that um, that actually we want councils building more social housing we want there to be more house building we want houses to be affordable it seems that we just don't know what the x factor is of why the blinking hell is it is it not happening um, yeah I mean I'm, I'm, I'm the hard-nosed conservative in the room and and other you know, people I, will use different I'm not words. As, I'm not as warm and cuddly as Cal, but I, I you know, I, I'm not inhuman. I'm not the cartoon character that you paint me for, but it, it it's it just feels like a win for everybody. It's good business sense. It's good financial sense. It's good for people's mental health. It's good for stability. It, it it's good from every angle. Yet Tipner still remains a mess without any houses on it. Because if the if the council was intervening more directly in the housing market, then then developers wouldn't be able to hold the council over over a barrel when they take a when when they take a development to to planning and say, well, we can't afford to proceed with this if if we actually have to include the affordable housing, because um, the council could turn around and say, well, fine, if you're not going to de- develop it with affordable housing, we will, and you won't make any money. Um, you know, apart from the legislation allowing. Um, allowing developers to to get away with doing that, and then suing councils if they actually re- kick out planning applications, in order to you know to the point where it's actually not financially worth them, ref- you know, stand, standing by their principles on that. Um, it kind of seems like it it, it makes um, makes too much sense. Oh God, have we done that again? Have we found actually common sense in our in our debate? <laughs> we just can't make it happen. So as we drawing towards the hour. Um, just to, to close the podcast out in terms of of uh, thoughts and hopes for the for the next three to six months I, I, I guess Rick yours is that somehow your um your eviction hearing gets to the front of the queue or better still that your tenants have some moment where they realize that they're properly out of order yes um, I'm, I'm, I don't know why they're not paying something because they have an income. Um, mm. you know, it's not that, that they've been made redundant as a result of, and they're, you know, because if they had, they they then have housing benefits, which they could use to pay, you know, the state mm. does help people out. I have tenants who are refusing to pay anything. And I, you know, and again, as we draw the pod to a close, Rick, we just want to say a massive thank you from us for coming on and sharing what is a, a pretty uncomfortable story. So, Cal, as our housing expert, what, what are your hopes for the next six months? I guess my hopes are is that as eviction proceedings um, do resume, because they will have to um at some stage that that's accompanied by a form of there is through no fault of their own over the COVID period that actually supports people to stay within their home um and not become homeless but also i, I would hope that this kind of juncture can hopefully act as um a, a, an incentive for governments to look 
longer term at what's happening within the housing sector more generally and obviously that means local authorities intervening in the market and building affordable homes but it also means looking at structural reforms within the private rented sector that give tenants greater security and address some of the affordability issues. Brilliant. Thank you, Cal. Just yeah. before we go Thank straight you, to the door, um, we have um, Steve Pitt agreeing with you there um, in the chat room and saying that Tipner West, um, as we were talking about that, is now progressing after years of inertia um, and it will need all parties to back it for it to actually happen. So... We'll all watch this space looking west, well, depending on where you are in the, on the island or off the island, as Ian and I are. And, you know, and Rick's very much off the island. Um, so but we're, still, we're still valid Portsmouthians. Yes, we're, yeah, we're still part of the island. Damn it. No matter what yes. these people say, separatists. Um, yeah. Right. So. <laughs> so you've been listening to the Pompey Politics Podcast. Blue and yellow till we die. I've been Ian Tiny Morris. And our guests have been Rick and Calvary. And I've been Simon Sansbury. <laughs>